Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Last week I described a perverse understanding of God in which we imagine that God is on our side in our country, in war, or in maybe our choice of political party. And in this perverse understanding, God is mistaken for the law, for the authority of our culture, or for whatever we think is right. And today I want to pose the idea that God is indeed for us, apart from God in the relationship or apart from others there is no self this is what Paul says in Romans 8 31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us but if we do not encounter the power and presence of God in the structures of the law in our cultural understanding the question is where and how do we connect with God And Paul describes this connection throughout Romans 8. In verse 26, he says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so God enables our prayer, our expression to him through his spirit. He searches our hearts and knows our mind in a deeper sense than I guess we ourselves have access to. As the writer of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God knows us better than we know ourselves, the word of God or the spirit of God. It's not to be encountered in a mere outward authority, but it resides at the very depths of who we are. There is the sense that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. That doesn't sound quite right. Sounds a little contradictory, but I think it's a truth that's available to us. Every child, you know, we go through a process in which a a young infant doesn't even know the difference between themselves and their mother. And we all come to a kind of awareness of that. My children bought me a birthday present but it's actually it's a present I have to make for myself but each week they send me a prompt and I write an answer to the prompt one prompt your favorite dog and so I tell them about Mr. McGee who he could actually open cans of dog food and he would wipe his feet before he came in the house memories of my grandmother my grandma was a drag racer of course, what that means, she drag raced her buggy up and down Main Street in Parsons, Kansas. My first job, actually my first job was in a circus. The Barnum and Bailey Circus set up and I was a little kid and I went over there and worked for the circus. 
But this week, the question kind of got me to thinking, are you the same person you were as an adolescent? Uh, it kind of strikes at the very notion of what a person is. And it is a question that I had struggled with even as a very young child. Everything seems to be changing. I remember driving down the highway and looking out the window and thinking, okay, what, what are we? We're, we're our memories, right? But what can you remember? And so I'd look at something, I'd look at a rock and say, I'd try to hold the image of the rock or the pole or the tree in my head. I know you're all looking at me. He was a very strange child. <laughs> and I couldn't. You know, you can't remember all of the details. Maybe we re remember a real special rock, but our memory is continually being lost to us every day. If we are our memory, some of us is losing ourselves and more rapidly than others. And around this time, and I actually I don't remember the, the order of things, but I came up with a formula. I, was, I suppose I was about five or six years old. And I hit upon this formula and it made me very happy. I felt very satisfied. And the formula is very simple. I am me. And I said that, I don't know if I literally, you know, I'm me. I don't know if I literally pounded my chest or not. The realization that I think every child comes to, oh, that I kind of aligned with myself momentarily. But then, of course, if you repeat the sentence, when you repeat the sentence, you get the feeling. But when you're not repeating the sentence, you don't have the feeling. And I discovered, well, wait a minute, I am and me, actually they're held together only in the sentence. And this is why I failed kindergarten, because I was thinking these thoughts and not paying attention. I tried saying the sentence with great force, I'm me, or real rapidly, I'm me. But I and the me did not cohere. They were two separate things. There's a discord, there's a gap between the two. Now this should sound a little bit familiar to you because this is very similar to what Rene Descartes discovers. He says, I think, therefore I am. I guess it was about the same time that I turned to my unconscious self. I, as a little kid, I don't know if you remember your dreams, but I remember I started dreaming and I dreamed that I could fly. And of course, when you're a little kid, you don't know that your dreams and when you're awake you don't know the difference. We lived in Page, Arizona and I remember the scenery when I would fly over the Grand Canyon and over there was a rock that was a perfect natural bridge. I think that that kind of became my answer to the problem. I was only about three foot tall but I began to think about this as my immortality, that in some way this literally lifted me up above other people. Now I assume all of this is because I was a fairly slow child. And I think that every child must go through this. The passage through a growing awareness of self-identity and yet the unease and dissatisfaction inherent in the incompleteness of the process. You know, I think therefore I am Immanuel Kant would come along and say, well, wait a minute. 
The thinking and the I am are two separate things. The thinking thing and the thought are not joined together. This, by the way, is the founding of what we call the modern period in human history, human thought, human philosophy. As Soren Kierkegaard, who was a famous Danish theologian, would put it, he says there is a passage into despair in the self's relationship to the self. Despair, he says, is a sickness in the spirit, in the self, in which there is a refusal, maybe a refusal of continuity or a failure to be a self. We can fail to be ourselves. We can fail to be fully human. And this despair has primarily to do, in Kierkegaard's opinion, with our self-relationship. He talked about the relationship between the body and the soul. In the relationship, there is a third term, he says, what holds us together. And we can pause it. He goes through and kind of trick ourselves, like I tricked myself. Oh, well, I have a kind of innate, immortal soul, or as in Rene Descartes' understanding, he says, I have absolute knowledge. I know. There's one thing I know. I think. Therefore, I am. So we posit this third term, and of course, that's the thing that we begin to rely on. There is an antagonism built into the human self-relation that... Kierkegaard calls the human disease and he assigns primary importance to this relationship not simply to the body or the soul but to the dynamics of the relationship and he says there's an absence but it can be accounted for this gets a little complicated but if this relation which relates itself to its own self is constituted by another if it's constituted by God, is what he's talking about, the relation, doubtless, is the third term. But this relation is in turn a relation relating itself to that which constituted the whole relation. What he's saying is, the way that we relate to ourselves properly is only in and through the one who constitutes us as a person. The unease or disease of not being fully a self, an I that cannot arrive at its me, I think that's the fundamental human problem. And it's maybe the ultimate prompt if we don't take flight. It points to the power of God, the constituting power of I am. And I think this is precisely the way that God is portrayed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he says, let us create man, humankind, in our image. And it's this imaging power that's created. You know, there's a plurality in God and there's a plurality in the, in the human beings. In the original image, God's self-image, there is a relational unity. There's three but one. And I believe that we cannot abstract our image from God's image. The difference between the divine and created image, our image is mediated to us through God. God's is a self-mediating image, a representation that contains an original unity. I'm just saying in different words, we don't hold together by ourselves. 
Man's image, his life, is not found within him, but within his relationship to God. And that's the way God created us. In this sense, you know, I am not me. I am not my own. I am not through my own word or my own reflection. The fully interior or self-conscious ego is in fact the ego of sin. Within Paul, the mode of consciousness that says that I own myself or that I am my own, that is the self-conscious ego, the I that he says has died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's no longer the ego, but it's Christ that lives within me. This is true in Genesis. When does the I appear? In Genesis 3.9, we have the first pronouncement of the word ego, I, the fall of man. Verse 9, then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you. He repeats the I four times. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. The first sentence after the fall has four eyes in it. He's stuck on this ego. And they feel their nakedness. I'm naked. I'm afraid. I'm ashamed. They fall apart and they're desperately trying to clothe themselves. Or they're hiding. They run out in the trees. Or then they hide. They try to make leaf coverings for themselves. Maybe that's just the history of humankind. We're ashamed, we're naked, we're afraid, and we're trying to cover over the shame. We would take flight, we would establish some absolute knowledge, we would construct a false world in which, as the serpent says to Adam and Eve, you'll be like gods, knowing good and evil, you'll have life. And so when I became me, this was the sign of the fall as Paul depicts the creation, but also the original male-female relation, were created interdependent. He says in reference to Genesis in 1 Corinthians 11, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, man is not independent of woman, for just as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. In Genesis 1, humans are depicted as bearing the image as male and female. God speaks, let us. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And they are created as a plurality. So whatever else the image might be, it includes this quality of relationship. It's whatever allows us to have relationship with other people, with God, and with nature. And so where the divine image is through the persons of the Trinity, the human image is found within this relationship with God, with the world, with one another. And the failure of this image, you know, that's what we see in Genesis. They fall out of relationship with one another. They begin to accuse one another. They fall out of relationship with God. They begin to accuse God. You're the one that did this to us. And they fall out of relationship with nature. They're gardeners, sort of like I'm a gardener. By the toil and sweat of their brow, they get one little tomato. And it's very expensive, and they can't hardly live on that tomato. I'm exaggerating, but 
So there is a f embodied original image, you know, it's male, female. That's a part of our imaging. We do not bear the image apart from our bodies, from the needs, the drives, the capacities, the delights of being in the world, of being in organic existence. We are embodied and we're embodied in a world so that being placed in relationship to the garden, to the world, to maleness and femaleness, all of this is conjoined in a relationship with God. All of this is part of what it means to be a self. We do not have ourselves apart from a world. Or to say the same thing, we don't have ourselves apart from God. But we do not have anything apart from this larger whole. To recognize anything as this or that, it has to be placed in a horizon of meaning. All meaning is a part of a world inclusive of the world of language and metaphor and only by inhabiting a location in this world can things mean. This is Adam's problem. Adam's naming the animals. I think he's sorting out the kinds. And he feels dislocated. That somehow the animals, the creatures, all have their place, but he does not have a place. And then it says, and God makes him a helper. Now this is not a secondary role. The word used to describe what Adam was missing is actually applied to God himself. Helper is too weak a word in English. God is the one who is the helper, who provides aid, relief, and help in the Old Testament. But in this instance, God accomplishes this through the companion. That is that God comes to the couple in and through one another. This means that the love and presence of God in our lives cannot be uncoupled from our mutual interdependence. This is the one book in the Bible that we often don't know what to do with. It's the Song of Solomon. It's a love story. It's very erotic in many ways. But it also includes the surrounding countryside. He describes her hair like goats, descending Gilead. Her teeth are like newly washed ewes, he says. But then the countryside itself is part of the vision seen through this love relationship. Gilead, the rose of Sharon, and the lilies of the valley are themselves seen through the lens of love. That is, that love is their understanding not only of one another, but of their entire garden. They're actually in a garden. And the love relationship adds depth and dimension to their everyday world. As Solomon speaks of the flame of Yahweh permeating this love relationship, they meet God in the garden as they come to one another. The love of a right kind is a flame that only God can kindle. And so we are human in relationship. Apart from God in the relationship or apart from others, there is no self. I am not me. I am not my own. This is proven very cruelly in instances of children just cast out into nature, suckled by wolves. Well, they become wolves. As Hegel explains in the very beginning of independence and dependence, lordship and bondage, 
The self-consciousness could only be achieved through being acknowledged by others. If we're not acknowledged by others, I think we are incomplete within ourselves. I am not me. This is the way that Karl Barth describes the creation of woman. He says that, and I think this applies to the Song of Solomon too, he says the completion of all creation, described here, the completion of creation of the man by the woman, is not only the secret, one secret, but it's the heart of all secrets of God the Creator. The whole inner basis of creation, God's whole covenant with man, established, realized, and fulfilled historically, is prefigured in the completing of man's emergence by the coming of woman to man. You don't have a complete humanity with a singular man. Aloneness is not good. It's the only time in the creation story when God says, that's not good, that man should be alone. And sin itself is this alienation. Redemption is the realization of the fullness of relationship prefigured in marriage. That's the way that Paul is going to describe. The man shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife. He's describing Genesis. But then he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Here is the secret of creation fulfilled in Christ. As the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas has described it, at its most fundamental level, self-consciousness is not one-sided action, but it necessitates an other to reach it. Facing with an other is not only necessary for the recognition of the self, but it is also a must for the self to have self-consciousness. I am not me. I am not my own. Just at a fundamental level. If you just take the word recognition in Latin, it comes from the meaning to recall again, to know again. If one reaches the self-consciousness by recognizing the other, it means that it recalls the self by acknowledging or being acknowledged by another. That is, our humanity is affirmed through other people, corporately, and we do this for other people. But God has acknowledged us in Christ. We need not take flight. We need not pause it as Rene Descartes did, an absolute foundation. We need not imagine as Adam and Eve did, as the covenant in Isaiah 28 describes, that we have life within ourselves. Colossians 1.21 says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, in your deepest selves, because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. That is, in our own self-concept, in our self-relationship, we were alienated. I am not me. Alienated from ourselves and God, and now we've been reconciled. This means we need not provide our own cover for shame, our own clothing, in a sense. We're clothed, this is Revelation 3.18, this is the conclusion of the story, actually, of the Bible, is that we're given white robes of righteousness and we're clothed in Christ. And this is the high priestly prayer 
of John 17, that all of them may be one, Father. We're reunified with one another. And Jesus prays, may they be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There is the fulfillment of the gospel, that unified, loving relationship. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.